Support for WRFA is brought to you by Quadrant Biosciences, now providing no-cost COVID testing in Chautauqua County. Quadrant Biosciences has partnered with Chautauqua County to provide free COVID testing. For more information on how to schedule an appointment, visit quadrantbiosciences.com slash COVID testing. Support for WRFA is also brought to you by Southern Chautauqua Federal Credit Union. Southern Chautauqua Federal Credit Union provides credit union membership to people who live, work, worship, attend school, do business, and any other entities within Chautauqua County. For more information, including how to become a member, call or text 716-665-7000 or visit them on the web at 665-7000.com. And again, you're listening to WRFA, and we do have Leland Gant joining us via telephone this morning. With that being said, Leland, thank you so much for taking time out and talking with us today. Oh, you're so welcome, Jason. Thank you for reaching out. Appreciate you. Yeah, we're looking forward to the uh, the show coming up uh, later on this week on Friday. And, and maybe a good place to start is, is with the show. You're going to be coming to Jamestown on Friday to present the one-man show, Rhapsody in Black. I imagine some of this will be covered in your show, but maybe to start... Can you share with our listeners a little about yourself, including where you're from and how you got involved in theater and the arts? Uh, yeah, I grew up in a town outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, McKeesport, Steel Town. Um, uh, born and raised there, graduated high school, went to college. Uh, I got involved with theater arts in high school. It was a matter of... Uh, Looking for something to see, uh, find some self-esteem. Uh, you know, uh, I ended up going to a drama club in high school. Janet Robb was very instrumental in helping me get on track with this. She trained me, and uh, she really squired me through the forensics league and competitions. I, I won. You know, had competitions every weekend, and I would never place less than a second place. You know, first and second places. Eventually you know, uh, competed in nationals for forensics with uh, dramatic interpretation of uh, of literature. That pretty much put me on uh, the track and let me know that this was something I was good at and wanted to do, and I got a positive reflection behind doing it. So that, uh, not to mention that it it made me somewhat attractive to the fairer sex, you know. Uh, (laughs) Right. So... uh, uh, that was all very positive reinforcement, and so it just put me on this track to do that. You know, uh, there's a lot of backstory about as a kid, my mother and I watching movies and whatnot, and, you know, me watching those, you know, Jimmy Cagney and all those stars at the time, you know, even Sydney and, you know, uh, Ozzy, uh, you know, uh, it was just something that I thought I, 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 I wanted to do, I was always aspiring to do, and I, I got on the track to do it, and uh, eventually wound up here. Um, it took a minute to actually get into the artistry of it, and uh, after many cycles of recommitting myself to this uh, field of endeavor, you know. But uh, I really do feel like from then to now, I, I found my calling. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. So Wonderful. Uh, we're going to talk more about the development of Rhapsody Black in a moment, but again, just uh, a little bit more uh, about your background. What are some of the other major theater, film, or, or television projects you've worked on since uh, becoming a professional, and is there any singular piece of work or project you're most proud of? You know, um, my wife likes to say, if uh, somebody asks you for your favorite piece of music, if you have one, you don't really like music, you know. There's just it's so difficult to, to, to winnow it down to 
one specific thing. And one of the biggest things that happened to me in my early career is playing Martin Luther King in a miniseries back in the, the late 80s. And that was great. It made me a star in my hometown. But, you know, I did, looking back at the work, I'm not very enamored of it. So I can't really say that that's uh, something I want to stick in, a flag into as far as well, one of the things I'm most proud of. Uh, I've done some original things. Um, uh, well, a man named Keith Glover wrote a piece in Walks Ahead. It was shortlisted for the uh, Pulitzer. It was a, a gangster dramatic comedy that took place uh, in a basement in Harlem. Uh, it was originally produced, uh, premiered in the Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park. Uh, that, that was a wonderful experience for me. Uh, Another uh, original uh, experience I had was with Walter Mosley, his first play, uh, Fall from Heaven, based on his uh, novel, uh, the, the Tempest Tales. Uh, so, you know, those two things, plus uh, playing both Iago and Othello in my career, which I think is a unique situation. I played Iago opposite Delroy Lindo's Othello in uh, Cleveland some years ago, uh, which was great with the Hal Scott. Uh, idea. He originally did it with Andre Brown and uh, Avery Brooks. Those three things I can point to in my career as being highlights, and not to mention being on Broadway under studying Rock Seven. You know, there's just so many things and, and that have been, you know, great in my career. Taking Rhapsody to Sweden to do a tour in Sweden is, a, is another highlight. So, I mean, I, I feel like I have been blessed as an artist, uh, you know, I haven't made a ton of money. I haven't gotten a ton of acclaim, but, you know, I've had a very interesting and varied, wide-ranging career so far. So i got no complaints. Right on. Again, we're talking with Leland Gandhi. He's coming to Jamestown on Friday to present Rhapsody Black, a, a one, Rhapsody in Black, a one-man show. And, and getting to the, the show itself, Leland, what was your motivation or inspiration for developing this show? I, I guess how long did it take you to put it all together from inception to first performing it in front of an audience? Um, I was just looking for work for myself. Uh, I had, uh, had to put, the, I had to find a new uh, money gate because I was about to go to jail behind uh, my management messing with my time off at the restaurant. <laughs> so I decided I need to find another way to make some money when I was not working as an actor. If you can't find so work, make it, right? Yeah, Exactly. So I trained as a massage therapist. That took 16 months. When I came back, the major question in the industry, as far as I was concerned, was Leland who? <laughs> so it was been a matter of trying to come up with something to put myself back on the map. I wrote what I thought were, were nine discrete monologues. People who knew me said that they all sounded like me in my voice, so why didn't I just claim that? I eventually did that. And, you know, there's a, a strange alchemy of, of, of training because I'm not a writer and had to find out how to do that, train myself. You know, uh, that, ex, that self-excavation to find the stories, you know, uh, the epiphanies along that journey that contributed to me fleshing out the story. This, look, I was in Santorini, Greece on my honeymoon in, in 2001, about 10 days after, 10 days, maybe two weeks after 9-11. And I was writing a monologue sitting at the poolside there, then, on this play. That monologue did not make it to the play. That gives you some idea about how long I had worked on it before finally unveiling it uh, at uh, the Actors Studio in 2013, I think it was. And uh, from that moment on, you know, uh, the development uh, of those artists, 
uh, and Michelle Parsons coming on board, uh, helped shape it and, and flesh it out. Um, so, yeah, that's basically the journey. I mean, uh, it's difficult to talk about process. A lot of folks don't want to talk about process because, really, the creative process is not something that you, you know, you map and, and, <laughs> and you map out. You find yourself, you know, following leads and visceral connections and, you know, little crumbs in the forest, and you end up with what you end up. And uh, trying to, to catalog what happened is more um, a, a system of or a, a situation of trying to remember it as opposed to cataloging each step along the way. Yeah, there are places where you start, but uh, describing process, man, you get into, you, you get into a dangerous zone of, of, of undermining your process, you know. Al, Al won't talk about process. You start to try to talk to Al Pacino about process, and you find yourself in a completely different conversation. Right. So, <laughs> and process is always a nebulous thing, and you know, it's, it's training, inspiration, and an alchemical flash point somewhere that uh, makes something come alive. That's been my experience. Right, and you know, we we talk to a lot. We talk a lot with songwriters here on our program, and and they have a, a similar you know, a way of explaining their process for even writing something as simple as a song. And I would imagine, a, you know, a one-man show that you put together is, you know, I, I don't want to shortchange anybody who writes music, but uh, a lot more of a challenging process, an effort to put together an entire program, uh, a one-man show, rather than just a, a single song. But they have the same basic explanation, saying, you know, it's more of a journey. It's not like I, I intend to write a song about this, and I'm going to follow this structure, and, you know, in, in the course of a day, I'm going to have the song completed. They don't know how long it's going to take them to write the song, and sometimes they don't know what their um, song is going to end up sounding like for, compared to when they first started working on that first chord or those first few uh, notes or a melody. So I, I think in that sense, our listeners may be familiar with what you're trying to say, that you really don't know until until you get it completed what what it's gonna what the final outcome is gonna be. Yeah, sometimes it's like you know uh, a little bit of a light play on the the, the tail of a bunny rabbit uh, disappearing down a hole. You follow that rabbit and try to find out where it's trying to lead you. You, you often don't know where you're going. It's a process of you know opening yourself up, loading yourself up, and opening yourself up, and then letting go. So uh, that's, my, that's been my artistic experience. And, you know, who was it one? Um, ah, the Mystic. Who wrote The Mystic? Michelle, who wrote The Mystic? Uh, Van Morrison. Van Morrison. He was asked, yeah, Into The Mystic. He was, he was asked, how did you come up with that? He says, man, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't but it's here. It's excellent, and it's a piece of work. So, you know, is it important how? It's important that it exists. Well said. You're going to be presenting Rhapsody in Black twice, and we'll talk more about the, uh, the actual content within the one-man show so our listeners will be familiar before they come out and check it out. But, uh, you know, it's going to be twice on Friday, once to a, a local youth, um, a youth program presented to the youth from throughout the greater Jamestown area. Again, the, uh, the general public... Uh, is allowed to attend in the evening at 7 p.m. Is it the same exact show both times, or do you make adjustments depending on who the audience is going to be? I would imagine that a lot of it is scripted, but I'm not sure if you go off on tangents depending on uh, who your audience is going to be. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, 
Yeah, uh, no, I have a, I have a, a, a more school-friendly uh, uh, iteration of the play. I have a 90-minute, which is uh, chock full of all the sex, drugs, and rock and roll, the actual uh, journeys with all the dark stuff. And I've been told that the 90-minute is somewhat darker than the 60. But the 60-minute had to have, uh, not only being shorter, for it to be more palatable to, 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 to educational institutions to, to get together and, you know, called together a couple of uh, classroom uh, blocks. Uh, it also had to be, you know, uh, a little bit more benign so that uh, we would not be attempting to or, or it seemed to be, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, we, we had to cut off the sex, drugs, and rock and roll for the kids, basically. Right. So it's a shorter and cleaner iteration, uh, but it maintains the power and the message, so... Uh, that, too, was a challenge. I didn't think I could do it, but upon uh, figuring out this is one of the things we wanted to do, I was asked if I could, and I surprised myself by doing that. So, yeah, it's a 60 and a 90. But the, the show itself uh, confronts racism in America, and I don't want to say it's it's from the perspective of a, a black man confronting racism, because a lot of this is, is before you were even uh, you know, a, a grown man. It's when you were... Uh, growing up and being raised and some of the issues of racism that you encountered in your formative years. Uh, how, how it helped shape you into the person you are today, how did those formative years in the 60s and 70s compare to what other African Americans were experiencing during that same time? Uh, would you call it a, a typical or an atypical upbringing? Well, first I want to say, you know, uh, although black life in these United States is not necessarily not necessarily a monolithic experience, there are some, some things that typify an experience of the black person in this country. You know, um, small middle class uh, urban existence. Uh, most uh, a lot of black people grew up in the ghetto, and uh, the that's what my situation was. Uh, uh, the choice pool that you have, you know, uh, the the uh, the migration of the people coming up from the south into the inner city, uh, formulating ghettos, and uh, the, the the things that happened as a result of that. Um, most of us have uh, experienced uh, a rather restrictive existence, you know, uh, confined to uh, certain areas of urban population. So uh, in that fashion, my experience, although my experience, is very similar to the experience of uh, many, uh, most uh, black people in this country uh, when I was growing up. I mean, you look at uh, what happened in the 60s and the 70s, the civil rights movements and uh, the death of the leaders and, you know, uh, the cataclysms of, uh, behind governmental mismanagement and uh, obfuscation and blindness. I mean, we all of us have had uh, similar experiences were uh, buffeted by the same elements. Uh, we can go into each specific instance. I mean, uh, Richard Wright talked about, you know, uh, his experiences in Chicago with his writings and, you know, it was emblematic of experiences in, in urban areas in uh, most major cities in this country. So, yeah, it's not a monolith, but uh, sadly to say, uh, there is a corollary and a, a typical existence that can be 
teased out about black life in these United States. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a, a shared experience that doesn't necessarily need to even be spoken, um, you know, <laughs> you know, and, and, and the others know as well of what that experience entails, although yeah, it's man. unique. Yeah, everybody has unique experience, but it's like, you know, as a black man, I walk, the, I walk this country, this planet, and I look into another black man's eyes, and I can just nod, and there's a world of communication that happens in that nod because it's a recognition of a shared existence uh, that is, you know, wow. It's hard to describe, and I, I don't know, well, I guess this is what the, the goal is, is to try to purvey that experience, to illuminate that experience uh, to folks who don't necessarily, who are not necessarily conversant with that experience. All right. Do you think today's African-American children and young adults have the, the same experience and, I guess, for lack of a better word, obstacles and challenges that you and your own generation faced, or, or has it changed or evolved during the past 40-plus years? Racism still exists, Jason. It still exists for people of color all over this country, all over this world. So in that sense, nothing has changed. You know, there are, there's, a, there's a more diverse experience for young people today. You know, but by the same token, uh, <laughs> there's no more cross burnings. But you know, uh, black folks have still, you know, suffered the brunt of, of, of much of what happens in in the world: the pandemic, the, the socioeconomic crises. You know, skin color still trumps everything. I mean, if your name is Draymond Green, your 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 resume is very likely going to end up in, in in a garbage can as opposed to you know. Uh, even Clarence Williams III, a black man, he's going to have a better a, a chance of getting his resume seen by people in HR because <laughs> of the way the name sounds. So mm. uh, it, it's like, huh. Uh, each successive generation, I think, have had their own specific challenges, but the one thing that we have shared since Reconstruction is the fact that racism still exists, Still, a major inhibition in life of people for life of people in this country, black people of color in this country, and uh, yeah, uh, the iterations are a little different now. I mean, you have Karens. Oh, do we ever? <laughs> you know? Yeah, you know, and you have you know a lot of political manifestations that uh, are claiming. Uh, one thing, but uh, they're actually doing something else. I mean, uh, back in the day, you know, people burned crosses, you know, dogs got sicked on you, and, you know, you got hit in the face and kept from uh, sitting at lunch counters. And now you can sit at a lunch counter and you can come into, like, Denny's. And you might sit there an hour and a half before you get somebody to come over and take your order. And then when you get your food, it might be cold. You know, you're still dealing with stuff like that. You know, and it's like, wow, uh, you want to talk about microaggressions? I mean, there's so much stuff that has gone underground or morphed into another manifestation that uh, when you've lived the life of, of, of antennae, cilia, that have been developed to try to keep you on a, on a KV, on a, on a solid footing in the midst of all the swirling, you know, things that come at you as a result of this, cancerous racism, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's the same 
and yet it's different. And I can't even say viva la difference because the difference just makes it even harder to deal with. Right. I, I can imagine then that you oftentimes will hear, whether it be just um, you know th- through the media or uh, talking with somebody who might not necessarily have the same viewpoint as you, I, I acknowledge racism exists. A lot of people acknowledge racism still exists in our country, but some people have that feeling that, well, we had Barack Obama as a president, and, and things are not the way they were um, generations ago. How do you react or respond when you hear someone say racism is no longer an issue today? Well, uh, what about Charlotte? What about the synagogues that are being, you know, shut up by people from anti-Semitism? That's not racism, you know? What about the, the, the continued unearthing of, you know, white supremacists in police forces all over the country? Uh, what about, I mean, look, man, <laughs> what about Mitch McConnell's uh, 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 Freudian slip, you know, African Americans are voting at the same clip as other as Americans. I mean, mm. come on, come on. I mean, yes, racism exists. Now you can stick your head into a hole like an ostrich so that you don't experience it. You can stay in your siloed existence because you don't experience it. You you have a, a homogenous existence, so you're not really concerned about. Uh, the ramifications of that and the uh, exigent circumstances confronting the other. I mean, but the other is there. I mean, I, I, I walk the earth sometimes uh, astounded at the fact that people are living there, you know? I mean, damn, there's a whole city over there I didn't even realize existed, but there's a city and there are people and they have lives, and I just wonder what their lives are like, you know, compared to mine. I mean, I'm not there. But they're human beings with an existence. And, you know, uh, yeah, there's racism. And all you have to do to see it is open your eyes. The fact that we're pulling so hard in the other direction just to uh, learn things about the actual history, the plug the holes that history does not cover, the history of this country does not cover. The, the, the and it seems like they're trying to cover it. And not only are they tr- no, still not acknowledging that history, it, it appears at times they're trying to bury what history, you know, I was even taught growing up. It yeah. seems as though it's, it's, you know, going in reverse direction in terms of uh, educating people about the history of our country. If anything, they're trying to, to bury the, you know, the warts, at least as they appear to, to white America. Yeah, uh, you know, and the, the irony of, of it all is that we're not saying anything that hasn't been said, reiterated, and, you know, actually ratified, codified since the 60s. I mean, it, it, this cycle is just incredible. And uh, you don't have to have any initials behind your name, a BA, a MA, a MFA. You don't have to have uh, five, six, 15 years of college and higher education to be able to see these things. You just have to have the ability to open your eyes and actually see what is around you, where you're living. And, you know, that's what you should be doing here. Uh, your show is going to be in Jamestown on Friday night. Jamestown has, a, has an active and a, uh, a prominent but small African-American community. So many in the, in the audience are going to be African-Americans, but many others are just going to be, you know, the, uh, the larger majority white population of the community. And it's great to see people wanting to come to see your show. Uh, 
that are of the uh, you know the, the white community, I guess, for lack of a better word. What more should should white Americans in general do, though? Is that part of your message to better understand the challenges and obstacles facing African Americans uh, across the country? Um, they, they aren't necessarily highlighted or seen in the media. Uh, oftentimes, people will uh, get their information or, or get their point of view from what they watch on television, right, or, or the music they listen to. But um, mm-hmm. there's so much more they can learn aside from the media. You know, what, what do you think should white Americans do to better understand the challenges and obstacles facing the black community? You know, it's just so simple. Uh, make yourself available to the other. Make yourself available to the things that you don't know. I mean, if you look at yourself, most white folks are in a homogenous situation, Right? Uh, it, it's true. Black people have been living among white people since day one. But white people have not really been living among black people. White people have been reacting to the fact that black people live among them. So mm-hmm. it's always been a, a, a process of distance, uh, of, of uh, segregation, for, for want of a better word. You know, the only way you're going to really understand the other is to rub elbows with the other. I mean, the only way that you can change the way you see things is to find out what that thing actually is. Not what somebody has whispered in your ear, it might be. Not what somebody maybe has written pejoratively about that thing. Go out there and find out yourself about that thing. So basically, if you want to know what it's like to be a black person in this country, ask somebody. And don't be taken aback when they look at you and say, what what the hell, if you really want to know, Suffer that little bit of a storm, and because you know it's not going to be a usual situation for that black person <laughs> to have a white person ask them about that. You know, you have to understand that you, as a person, it is incumbent upon you to reach out to another person. That's what the human experience is about. So, if you want to know what's happening, I commend folks to come, the white folks to come see the show. You know, I commend black folks to come see the show. I commend anybody to come see this show because the idea is to have a conversation to try to eradicate this this monster, this cancer that is just really kicking the United States in the behind, you know. So, yeah, go out there and get to know some people. Make yourself available, you know. Don't be so afraid of the other. It ain't going to bite you. And if it does, it's just going to be like, you know, a little neighborly nibble just to let you know, okay, we got teeth, too. <laughs> you know? Right on. It ain't, it ain't that deep. You know, Jason, it is not that deep. Well said. Talking with Leland Gant. Leland, I, I had planned on this interview lasting 15 minutes. We're, we're closing in on half an hour, and I thank you so much for, indul- for indulging my time. I'm going to skip over a couple of questions I had, though, and, and try to just wrap it up with a couple more here. But, again, I just want to remind our listeners, uh, Leland Gant, who I'm talking to, is going to be in Jamestown Friday, February 4th, for uh, Rhapsody in Black at the Reg Lene Center for the Arts. And uh, tickets are available at the Reg. But, you know, getting back to our conversation here, it could go on for another half an hour. For sure, but let's uh, yeah. try to wrap it up here just for, for your sake of your time. Overall, what can, can audience members expect to see and learn from this show on Friday night? And, and put another way, what do you hope the biggest takeaway is going to be? Well, I mean, it, it really just kind of uh, uh, unpacks and expands on what I just said. You know, um, nothing's going to change about this racism crap unless everybody does something personal to change their viewpoint. You know, my show depicts the journey of a man 
who was buffeted of a, of, a, of a human being, who was presented with a certain set of circumstances that made him think and feel a certain kind of way. Moving through his life with that filter in place, he learned later that his filter maybe needed to be cleaned. Realizing that information, he went on and cleaned his filter and eradicated, got rid of a lot of the crap that was holding this human being back from actualizing his full humanity. That's the journey. Check yourself. Look at yourself. Examine yourself. Get rid of the crap and understand that you can change yourself for the better. And you have every responsibility as a human being to do that. This is just a crucible for that, you know? So look at yourself. Embrace the crap of yourself. Realize whether you need it or not. Get rid of it. March toward a broader, greater humanity, you know, that we can look at each other and see the same thing ultimately first instead of what is different about us. And then when we can get there, we can really have an opportunity to celebrate the differences between the two of us. So, yes, check yourself and make a change. That's the message. And we all need to do that. There's not a person walking this planet that doesn't need to do that. And if you feel that... You don't need to do that. <laughs> you should check that, too. <laughs> Amen. Uh, final question. Uh, people should come and see the show because this is a very enlightening conversation, and I am sure the message that you've actually crafted and have developed is, is even more enlightening. Uh, but besides yourself and coming to see you on Friday, what other artists, writers, or even sources do you suggest people turn to to learn more about uh, the issues, specifically uh, racism? Uh, in America, it, you you cover in your show. Uh, is there anybody else that you would encourage people, whether in the past or even in the present, that they should turn to to learn more? Man, there's just too many names. I, I can do Baldwin. Uh, I can do uh, Lorraine Hansberry, you know, in the past. I can do uh, uh, Charles Gordon. I, I mean, so, so many. But if you want to get a real handle on where we are today and uh, fodder for conversation. You should look at a woman named Isabella Wilkerson. Wilkerson. She wrote a book called Cat. Okay? And there's Jennifer Eberhardt. She wrote a book called Biased. Now, reading of those books in tandem will give you a great idea about where we are, why we're here, the challenges we can definitely face to try to navigate away from this spot, and maybe even some tools to employ to get there. So uh, those two books I would highly recommend. I mean, there's a plethora. There's Torre, who's a play for the uh, post-blackness. There's Margot Jefferson, uh, Negro Land. I mean, there's just so much. And for those who are really interested, there is a wealth of information of black artists, plays, movies, novels, nonfiction, philosophy. All you got to do is Google African whatever, black whatever. You got Google. Go to it. <laughs> Get All right. busy. All right. Yeah. Well, well, thank you. And, and thank you for this conversation. I really appreciate it. I hope our listeners appreciate it as well. I, I, again, I, I know that uh, time is a commodity, and I, I appreciate you taking time out to talk with us. Is, is there anything else you want to add before we, we wrap up this discussion? No, I just, I just want to thank you. 
for reaching out and providing this opportunity to pervade uh, this conversation, man. It's very important, especially today. Everybody come on out, and we're going to have a talk back after the show, so stick around, and I will entertain any and all questions. The only stupid ones are the ones you refuse to ask. So that's we'll just drop the mic right there. Looking forward to it. Leland Gant coming to Jamestown Friday, February 4th for his one-person show, Rhapsody in Black. Thank you so much for talking with us today on WRFA. Thank you, Jason. You have a great day.